Hello and welcome to the Believing People podcast. My name is Matthew Butler and I'm your host, or as I like to say, your facilitator. Today I'm with Nadine and we talk about her addiction to heroin and the journey that led her to her recovery today. So first of all, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name's Nadine Balmer. Um, I'm originally from a town called Gull, but I've been living in Hull now since, I think it's about 2004, 2005 that I moved here. So yeah, that was a bit of a culture shock coming yeah, yeah. to a city like Hull from it's a small cool. town. It's quite small, isn't it, Gull, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then again, like Hull isn't a massive city, I don't think. Like Even when I go to places like... Manchester, we've recently been to London and it was my, it was my first time in London and it was overwhelming. Like, yeah. Hull's kind of this city with, like, it, small town, town feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's not too bad. So, uh, Nadine, thank you for, for coming on today. Um, I want to really talk about your story because from what I've heard from, from colleagues, it is an interesting story. Um, but I know nothing about you. It's a, it's a name that I've, I've heard pop up um, from time to time, especially working with you, you know, your key worker in the past. But I, I know nothing about your story, so... Give me a little bit of an overview of, of what has brought you to this chair today. Yeah, no problem. So um, basically, um, I was in active addiction. I was addicted to heroin, crack cocaine, um, anything I could take really. I, you know, like I, I, I took all drugs basically. Um, but my drug of choice was heroin and crack cocaine. They're the two that really sort of got a good grip of me. I was 17 years in active addiction Um you know, like absolutely in the depths of despair, like could not get any lower. You know, when you ask people, what's your rock bottom? Like mm. hundreds, I had hundreds of them and they still never stopped me, mm. funnily enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, what made you, um, how old was you when you first started taking? Very young. Hard drugs? Yeah, I was about 17. That is, that is young to yeah. taking heroin. So I'd lost my dad when I was 15, um, okay. my biological father. Yeah. He'd never really been in my life, but um, I'd been left an amount of money through his will, um, £26,000. Wow. Yeah, and I was kind of vulnerable anyway. Um I struggled as a teenager, do you know what I mean? I wasn't a happy teenager, um, depression and things and, you know, sort of like suicide attempts and things as a as a young person, maybe 15. So I was never happy in myself, do you know Why? what I mean? I, I don't know. Now, back then, I would have said it was because of my dad dying and because of other things, do you know what I mean? But looking back now, it's because I was autistic Okay. I am artistic yeah. and I was finding it really hard to navigate my way through it mm. undiagnosed. Mm. So I was very good at masking. Um, yeah. So, so, so obviously you said 17 when you first started taking, you know, hard drugs. The death of your, death of your dad, again, you said, you, you know, wasn't that close to him, but. It was having that money there. It was having yeah. that access to that money. Uh, a lot of people sort of came in and took advantage. So, so for me, if I came into, at 17, if I came into £24,000, like, again, this is the, the difference in, 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 in our lives and, and things. But the last thing I'd be thinking of doing is spending it all on drugs. Yeah. I don't know if you spend it all on drugs, but the last thing I'd be thinking about is I'm going to buy a load of drugs. So I just want to kind of unpick, like, what made you think this is kind of where I'm going to go with this? And I was always into the party scene anyway, so oh, okay. I started yeah, into yeah. the rave scene. It was a really steady progression. So um, I was really into, like, um, tidy events. So I used to go raving. Um, we used to go all over the country, me and my friends. And, like, they, they were happy times. I look back on those days and they were really good times. Yeah, yeah but... Out of my group of friends, I had this thing that 
the party was never over for me. I yeah. always wanted to continue yeah. and take it further. I was a, I was just a real bad seshed mm. um, when I was younger. Seshed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so that's did, what they call it in Hull. Isn't well, it? Did you, so was it? What was what was the first drug you ever ever took? I did the really stereotypical ladder of progression. Okay. So cannabis, cannabis amphetamine, yeah. ecstasy. Mm. Um, then sort of like your pure reforms, MDMA, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, Cocaine, crack cocaine, heroin. Yeah. So it was a very stereotypical progression. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, I often found that um, there was a, a worker that we used to have at Renew. And she'd always argued, you know, people say cannabis is a gateway drug. It's not a gateway drug. She said, you know, trauma is the gateway drug. It's people often, it's because people often start on cannabis because normally it's the one that is the most accessible. Yeah. So when I was young, I used to smoke cannabis, but yeah. it never really went any further for me. Yeah, yeah. And that's because I never had any trauma. And, and, and when, I, when we talk about trauma, you know, you've gone through, obviously, a loss and bereavement at a young age as well. Mm. Um, and struggling to sort of find my identity. Yeah. Um, I always say, like, it's been a big smack in the face sort of realising I'm autistic because at 36 years old, it's not something that you expect to go through your whole life thinking that everyone else has the same mind as you. Yeah. And I always used to say that was my problem to mm. people, you know, if, if other addicts, like, hurt me in any way or yeah. things, because I was always very kind and generous and giving. And, like, I used to say, you know, I just think everyone's like me. Yeah. I don't, I didn't used to realise that everyone's mind wasn't the same as mine. So it's quite a smack in the face, really, um, at this age to find out that, I feel kind of like um, a carrier bag floating through the wind. I know it's really cliche, but mm -hmm. it's so true. It's like you're a transient person. You don't ever have any sort of like you have you have interest, but they go as quickly as they come. So it's like, do you know what I mean? How old are you now then? Thirty six. Thirty six. So yeah. I think as well, you know, there's a lot more awareness around autism than than ever before. I think. Especially in this day and age of social media, people are sharing uh, autism stories. And, you know, yeah. but, you know, I mean, I've got a 10-month-old daughter myself, and I think naturally, you know, things that have come up in my TikTok algorithms, Instagram algorithms have been around, like, children and, mm. and learning disabilities, you know, weirdly enough, has kind of come up as part of that. But autism is often not diagnosed early, but the signs of it are obvious early. Yeah. Whereas I think when we talk to like some people of a, a generation, they go, Oh, when when I was younger you never had any of this autism stuff. Do you know it's like, well, we did. It's we always it. been there. Yeah. It just wasn't diagnosed. So people have gone through a lot of struggles such as yourself yeah. without a diagnosis. And I think it was a very set idea of what autism was. And they do say if you meet one autistic, you've met one autistic because we're all as different as what neurotypical well, people are. That's the spectrum that people talk about, isn't it? Yeah, so of course. What were some of your... Well, when you, when you look back at your childhood and on reflection... Uh, is the things that you think, oh, well, that makes sense now because Completely. of my autism? What sort so of I, I, I mask a lot and I also do something called explain, mirror behaviour. Explain masking to me first. So what? masking is where you know you're a bit weird, okay. but you cover your weird behaviours um, with neurotypical behaviours. So basically you put on a mask for, to present as neurotypical to the outside world. To try and fit in, yeah, I guess, is that part Yeah, of it? it's okay. all the anxiety and sort of like the judgment. And um, you're quite interested. It's a weird thing is autism, especially when it comes hand in hand with ADHD, because the autism, you're very much a um, sort of like internal person, but the ADHD is kind of like um, 
the opposite. So it's always like two people inside of you trying to fight. One of them is, um, I can't think of the word. What's the word where you're quite a quiet sort of internal... Introvert. Yes, one, yeah, yeah. one side's an introvert and the other side's an extrovert. Yeah, yeah. That's another thing as well. Yeah, I forget yeah. common words. It, it, it can be a word that I use daily. I just get that quite normally anyway. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah I'm always going for it. But yeah, no, I can, I can understand that then. So The mirroring behaviour is really it, yeah, what I believe led me to addiction in a way because um, I always thought it was a bit of a strength before I realised it was a symptom. Mm. Um, I still don't know if it could be a strength or not, but I always used to like class myself as a chameleon. Mm. So I could change my entire personality to whoever I was with. I could be with the hardest, roughest people and I would be one of them. I could also be with quite well-off people who, who were quite sort of like at high end of society and I could also mix very well with those people also. So I always thought that was a strength. But now looking back, now that I'm clean and of a clear mind, I realise that really that's mirroring, um, which is copying the people around you's behaviour. It's another form of masking. Mm. And now I truly believe that that was a lot of the issue surrounding the start of my addiction. Yeah. I was in with the wrong crowd. At the time that I got addicted to heroin in Goal, Goal was the heroin capital of the north of England, yeah. and it had a population of 17,000 people. Okay, yeah. So it was bad. It was absolutely rife. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, going to the mirror and stuff, I, I can see, I can see the advantages of it in some respect because it, it's, it's a way of easily fitting in with people. But yeah. then I can also see the disadvantages of that internal struggle of the need to fit in with people as well. Has that been a common thing throughout your life? That need for acceptance, that need to fit in with people. Very much so. And where where do you think that maybe comes from? Other than like obviously the the autism and everything diagnosis, has there been things in your life that have prompted you to be that way I always felt different I always felt a bit outcast um and I was always a, li a lot more liberal thinking than my peers at school so I was always quite judged for that like I was the first person to start using drugs I was probably the first person to have sex and they were all following me maybe a year later mm. so I was very scrutinized for it at the time until a year later my peers were doing it themselves then it was okay yeah. So I felt like, um, yeah, I suffered with bullying at school. Yeah, I didn't really fit in. Was that part of the, do you talk about experiencing depression as a young person? Was, yeah. bullying, was bullying a big part of that? Yeah, definitely. I didn't go to school for the last year. Okay. It wasn't even so much bullying because looking now, looking then I would have said yes, definitely. But looking back now, I see that it was all also linked to autism. Um, I suffer with something called rejection dysmorphia. Tell me about that then. So basically... Um, it's it's like a, it's rejection and emotional dysmorphia really any emotion that i feel i feel it's so much stronger than anybody else mm. it is like it's all consuming mm. um I, I, you know people will get like waves of sadness or waves of elation i, I get like the full blown uh, maximum amount that you could possibly feel um and it can be hard to deal with at times yeah. it's all like uh, most adult women that are diagnosed autistic, it's normally um, they've been misdiagnosed with BPD first. 
What's BPD? Bipolar disorder. Oh, okay. Yeah, borderline yeah. personality yeah. disorder. Yeah, I okay. Yeah, that's what they call it now. It yeah. used to be bipolar. Yeah. But yeah, so, because it's that sort of transient personality, never really having no sort of true sense of self. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of psychiatrists do sort of misdiagnose first. And I was always misdiagnosed. Yeah. Um, I seen child psychiatrists from being 15 onwards. I used to go to a place in Beverly. And um, have counselling and things there, and nobody ever spotted it. No, I think no. to be fair, it's, it's interesting talking to you now because again, it just everything here from the from the mirroring, the rejection, dysmorphia, everything that you talk about, it comes down to that need for acceptance. Completely, yeah. So let's go. I'm going to come back to this, but let's go into more about the drug addiction and where it took you. So that's where it came. I think it was the wanting of acceptance the needing of acceptance yeah. it's it's the human experience to f- want to be accepted and understood yeah, yeah, we all want it yeah, yeah. so basically i think it was like it's hard to explain like just give me a minute no, sorry, i've got brain freeze <laughs> um it was like the drug world Drug users, they're very good at all banding together, they group together, they all stand together, we all use together, it's our little, we're, we're outcasts of society. We, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you'll speak to a lot of people who say the same thing, that addiction um, and other addicts sort of became their family. It's a, it's a culture. Yeah. I think that's one people. One the way thing of that life. a lot of people don't understand is how much of a culture... Um, being a drug addict is yeah. and it's down to the social circles and I think going going forward a little bit that's one of the harder things to do when getting clean is because you've got to not just get off the drugs which is hard enough it is not you don't just have to unpick traumas and, and behaviors but you also have to disassociate yourself from an entire culture that you've been a part of yeah like you said mm-hmm. for 17 years yeah it's and hard. That, that's probably one of the hardest things to do it's like so and I think anybody listening to this just imagine your family, your friends, your entire people who you consider your family, your friends, your entire mm-hmm. social circle, just getting rid of it. Completely. To live a different lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's different things that have motivated you to move on to that lifestyle. So I guess in a way it's kind of thinking, it comes back to that recovery capital thing. What do I gain from sobriety? What do I gain from getting clean? And what do yeah. I lose? And often if you create like a bit of a checklist of, you know, benefits to losses sometimes the benefits might be less but they can outweigh them and obviously with yourself we'll talk about it soon having having you know a a son that would have been a massive part of that as well yeah so you said earlier you've had plenty of uh, rock bottom moments you have plenty of low moments we don't have to go into all of them um homelessness (laughs) yeah I'd, i'd be keen to know what i suppose what was the moment where you did think to yourself okay now here's here's after 17 years this is the time where I need to get clean. Yeah, so I was homeless. I was in. Well, no, I, I was, it, it was a bit of a more complicated no, story like, than that. Tell me in the most complex way you possibly can. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. So, um, a landlord that I'd met through addiction and things. Um, my flat was being sold, and I'd lived there for ten years. I was quite upset about it, and a landlord had um, gone and purchased my property almost as a favour um, mm. to take it over for me. But um, 
I, I, it basically he was doing a documentary on Channel Five. He had a group of landlords following a group of cameras following him about as a landlord Britain's benefit tenants. It was called, and he wanted me to take part in this. And because I wouldn't, um, basically he turned on me because um, he knew everything that was going on when he bought the property. Do you know what I mean? He was very aware of my situation. That's sad, that. Yeah, That's, it is uh, really sad. One thing me and my producer talk a lot about is what we call poverty porn. Do you know? People yeah. um, wanting to exploit people like yourselves in your situations Yeah. for entertainment. Yeah. Do you know, you look at the sort of Benefits Britain programme and all yeah. that sort of stuff. It was there yeah. to kind of like, in a way... Humiliate people. Humiliate people. Yeah, I think they picked off certain people as characters as well because I know quite a few people who filmed these shows in Hull okay. and they always said that they sort of had people lined up as like the mental yeah. crazy one and, yeah. and the quiet sort of like more sort of like socially norm. Do you know what I mean? So they already sort of characterised people before they interviewed it's them. It's exploitation, isn't it? It you is, I mean? yeah, in, in so, the deepest form. Yeah. So the, the landlord took it over. Yeah, and, uh, and he... he, he um, just basically, my life was made a misery for two years. I was um, evicted in, like, the most horrible way, do you know what I mean? So then um, and I came to Hull originally because I didn't want to use drugs around my family. I didn't want to bring that that stigma to my family. My mum has a job in gold, you know, that she loves. And everyone knows now, but back then... I felt like I was, it was almost like I did it to save them the embarrassment of me. So when I moved here, um, basically, um, I moved here with another addict who had been living here for quite a long time. And um, when I came, I don't even know where I'm going with this uh, now. We're just talking about living circumstances here. So obviously you, you've been in Hull for 17 years. This so is autism. How, how, this is autism no, in a nutshell. It is. You, you, you are, you're mid-flown. You really know what you're talking about. And then boom, it's gone. gone. Don't worry about it. So you get kicked out. How long you lived there? 10 years then? Uh, I'd lived there 10 years, how yeah, long the flat. Was How long ago was this that you got kicked out then? Three years ago. So, so it was only three no, years No, it was ago. about four and a half, five so years ago. about four and a half ago. years ago. Um... So I went to go live in Gaul with my mum again. Oh, okay, that's okay. That's now where it, it was going. Yeah, go <laughs> and um, I was clean while I was living at my mum's, but I had a relapse one day. Um, so I basically left used needles in the bathroom mm. by accident, completely by accident. Obviously, she was absolutely mortified. Yeah. Um, and so we, we was kicked out of the house immediately. So then we came through back to Hull and ended up in William Booth. Um, when you're that low, addiction it is like um, it's like darkness. It just overwhelms you. And... You start taking that drug because you're in pain, um, emotional pain, trauma, whatever, um, but nothing that, no pain that that drug can take away is going to be in comparison to the pain that it is going to cause. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It is a miserable, miserable life. You used heroin, obviously. Uh, we spoke a little bit about smoking it uh, as opposed to injecting. I was working at a, a company, it was an internet business directory, and I had a really good job there. I got into quality control working there, so I was QC. If people were making false sales or um, saying things over the telephone, they shouldn't be because it was sort of like really high sales um, patter, basically, over the mm. telephone. Um, 
so that was my job to sort of pull them and say, you know, you shouldn't have really said this or do you think you could say it in this way, do you know, sort of like going over all the legal things of it. Yeah. And um, a woman who worked there was an ex-addict and I did sort of know she was an ex-addict, but I thought that she'd moved on. And I've always been one of those people that if someone's changed their lives you've got to accept them for the person that they come and present themselves as today. You can't judge people off the past. Do you know what I mean? So I allowed her to present to me as who she was. So um, we got really good friends, you know, and we used to go on nights out together. And then um, she's, I think she must have sort of drifted back into relapse. And after a night out, we'd gone back to her house and she'd had some crack there ready to smoke. So that week I smoked crack. The next week... She had some heroin and said, oh, just have a bit of that in between. It'll make it last longer. I was absolutely sick as a dog. But anyone who takes heroin will tell you, as sick as it makes you, it's the nice kind of sick. You know? I, 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 let's go into that and explain to me. The, the first time you used heroin, what did it feel like? The first time you start to use it, the first few times, it does affect you. Um, in what way? So it's the stereotypical big warm blanket. Um, do you know Gaber May? Have you heard of Dr. Gaber May? So he's a, he's, um, he's a specialist in um, trauma and addiction and recovery and things. He's um, a Canadian and he's, he's sort of like getting up there with Jordan Peterson. He does a lot of talks and things about different sort of things in life. And he always says that... Um, it, 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 you don't ask why the addiction, why the trauma that caused the addiction, do you know what I mean? Mm. And I think even though I've been through what would, I would consider valid traumas in my life, I'm always one of those people that I look at others and I think, well, I've not had it half as bad as that person. So I kind of get a bit of like um, imposter syndrome in yeah. a way. And I don't feel like sort of like my story is as valid as what other people's is. Yeah, I get that. I think we, we, we all do that as well. Do you know, I think it's one of them things where when, when we talk about things like depression and, and feelings of sadness, you know, it's like, oh, well, I don't have the right to feel this way because yeah. I've, you know, I've got... I've got a job, I've got a home. There's people out yeah. there with so much less than me who are probably a lot happier. So it, I think it brings up a lot of feelings of guilt, doesn't yeah. it, I suppose? But it's not to, it shouldn't diminish how you feel or what you've gone through by yeah. any means, really. Well, when Gabe May explained it beautifully, and I hope I can do his explanation no. justice when I tell you now, basically, dopamine is what heroin releases in the brain, that's the chemical. Now, the whole reason why we have dopamine in our brains is because when we're born as babies and we're so, it's it's a connection to the mother and you that dopamine is released through a mother's hug. So when you hear people say heroin, it felt like you was wrapped in a big warm blanket. It was almost like the most gorgeous hug that you get from your mum when you're really poorly as a kid and it makes everything feel so much better that is what heroin did for me and when you think of it like that how he explained it that it goes back to sort of like in being an infant and that connect that dopamine creates that connection between mother and um, father and child it, it sort of starts to make a little bit of sense then did you enjoy using drugs when you did at the, no, at the end, I took drugs to feel normal. What about in the beginning? In the beginning, I took them to forget. Okay. Yeah, but that doesn't last long. Um, especially me knowing now, it, 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 
that what that's probably not the experience for everybody but it's quite a normal thing um within an autistic or ADHD brain you you have low dopamine anyway so you you do um something called dopamine seeking behaviors eating junk food um taking risks sort of like sexually with drugs anything sort of on the edge the ADHD brain is kind of a little bit more sort of you, you seek it out in a way mm. And I think really going back now and looking, it was all seeking out behaviours. It was a long time to be a drug addict, 17 yeah, years. Yeah. I've had people say, you know, one, I suppose one of, the, one of the boundaries or the barriers to getting clean is worried that life is going to be boring. And I find that when you really get down to it, some people enjoy the chaos. Yeah. Did you ever enjoy being an addict? Did you ever enjoy the chaos of the lifestyle, the unpredictability yeah. of it, not knowing kind of what's happening from one day to the next. Did you enjoy that? Yeah, yeah, what, I what did. What did you enjoy about it? I think, again, I put it down to ADHD, that dopamine-seeking behaviour, living life on the edge. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I put it down to yeah. myself. No, but it makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of times as well, what it is is you've been an addict for so long, you don't see... You think you've done so much damage to yourself and your life that it's not possible to recover from. You really are under such a veil of darkness. It is like a black cloud constantly over you. You know, every day is pointless. So what was the moment where, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but what, what happened in your life where it was like, okay, right, now I have to get clean? So I was in William Bove, um, and when I got to William Bove, any fight that I had left in me to survive this addiction was gone. Um, the only person I ever thought I was hurting throughout my addiction was myself, really. I didn't think about other people. I was always told I couldn't have children. I was always told that I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to conceive. So I was never living my life thinking, oh, what if I have a family and I've got to answer to somebody about this behaviour? Or The only person I ever thought I was hurting was myself. So... Christmas 2019, my life was just as bad as what it could be. I was snowballing, so I was injecting heroin and crack cocaine at the same time, mainlining it as well. Um, I had blood clots. Um, you know, I'd done a lot of damage to myself throughout addiction. I'd um, fallen asleep with a tourniquet on my arm and paralysed my arm for seven months and didn't get any medical help from it. It came back as quick as it went, this arm. Yeah. So I've, I did, I've done, a, you know, a lot of people will think they're rock bottoms. I had a blood clot in my leg. My leg was like five times the size of the other one. Mm. And it still didn't stop me because you've got no motivation, nothing. Everything's just dark. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And people who've been in depression will have some understanding of it. But imagine that really bad depressive episode then times it by a hundred, and that is active addiction. Because that sounds madness to, to say that you was going through that and it wasn't enough to stop you. To someone who was not an addict, to someone listening to this with no drug addiction experience whatsoever, they'd be that that'd be like that's mind blowing. You think it's gone too far. Yeah. You think that you can never recover. Your soul, it's it's disease of the soul is addiction. I like that. It really is. That's what it is. It it it. It takes away every part of you that made you you and it hardens you. Um, I think there's nothing more beautiful than seeing the light turn back on behind somebody's eyes when they get clean. There is nothing that gets me more excited than seeing that in somebody else. What 
What turned your light on? What was it that found out I was pregnant after all those years of thinking that I couldn't have children? I found myself pregnant, thirty-four years old, homeless, living in William Booth. But that was scary. Very scary. Um, So I'd seen a lot within social services through friends and things to know what was coming, Um, and I think. It doesn't work for everyone. That Sometimes that isn't even enough. Yeah. But for me, I think, in a way, my autism saved me because of this emotional and rejection, this phoria what I have. Yeah. Um, I knew that I could not lose my child. I knew that if I was not raising my own son, it would be the end of me. Mm. I had nothing to live for anyway. It's almost like I was presented a gift and the circumstances, all the stars just aligned. The circumstances were right. Had you, would you obviously you talked a little bit then about, um, you know, being told you, you couldn't conceive, that you couldn't have children. Did you want children at that point? Was it something that you'd thought about prior to knowing you was pregnant, that you, this is something you'd want eventually? I'd come to terms with the fact that I wouldn't. Accepted. Yeah, yeah. and in a way it was an excuse for me to continue as much as what I didn't want that life, you don't want to go for a withdrawal either. Yeah. You're trapped on a hamster wheel, in effect. It's it, And that's the easiest way to describe it. You're like on a giant hamster wheel and you can't get off. It's just a repetitive cycle of anxiety, rattling, scarring, anxiety, where you're going to get your next bit of money from, rattling, scarring. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And it's just constant, a constant repetitive cycle. And you imagine 17 years of that. Minute in, minute out, hour in, hour out, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out for 17 years. I was done. Yeah. I had added up to a year. So what made you, what was the thing that made you get clean and how did you do it? Because I'd gone through that for 17 years. Fear of withdrawal. What? Methadone. Tell me about being on methadone. Yeah, for, so a lot of people don't understand what methadone is. I've been works. on methadone for all that time. And oh, I, I do you? a lot on TikTok anyway yeah, yeah. about uh, methadone maintenance. Yeah. When you're ready for it, it is the most amazing thing. Mm. And it is, but you've got to be ready for it. So what methadone did for me was it gave me that period of stability where I could get my life back to normal again. Mm. And, you know, normal everyday life, it is boring, it is mundane, mm. you know... It is a boring life, but that is life. Especially life when you've is got boring. this dopamine-seeking behaviour that yeah. you've had for so long to to take that away. And it goes again. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about it being the the culture thing of it all. It, mm. It's a, you know it's a lifestyle, isn't yeah. it? Beyond more than anything. But if I hadn't have got clean, I wouldn't have realised I was artistic in the first place. So I could have still have been caught in that hamster wheel. Yeah, yeah. Even now to this day, mm. if that pregnancy and that love for that child hadn't have broke. The, the the chain of behaviour. How old is your son now? He's two and a half. Two and a half. I'll be three years clean at Christmas. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. So I'm still on methadone. I'm on 60 mil. I yeah. am starting a reduction plan. Yeah. But I was happy for those couple of years to just be on it, stable, um, because it gave me an opportunity to get my life back to normal. Yeah. And, like, you, you start to find other things that you like, Um Helping other people, do you know, sort of like sharing your story, things like this. Mm. I really enjoy to do this. Yeah. Gardening. I never thought that I would love gardening. But... I think that's weird when you get to, you get in your 30s and I, yeah. mean, I used to watch my dad garden on a weekend. I'd be like, 
what, 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 what horrible way to spend your weekend. And I now know. suddenly, here I am. I'm 30 odd years yeah. old. You're know, pottering about in my garden having yeah. the time of my life. It's strange. And I'm so proud of my plants yeah, as well. Exactly. You're, you're excited when, yeah. when your plants grow. It's, oh, it's strange, isn't it? But, yeah. So obviously being on... What was that... Have you always been on on sixty mm methadone, or have you, oh, what, was no. high, what was the highest? What was the highest? One hundred and twenty. Really? In fact, I think I was on one hundred and thirty. If you go back yeah. on my records, right back to, I mean, I'm going right back to when Renew was the keys on yeah. Mighton Street. So yeah, so obviously been on methadone a long time. Very then. long time. So what's the plan that you're on now? How are you? How are you coming down? I want to go slow, plan? and yeah. I did ask the doctor. Um, he, he said they don't normally do it, but I asked, can I do a five mil a month? Okay. Because yeah. I'm not in a rush. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's not too much different. Some people do two mil a fortnight, so it's, it's, it's kind of give or take there, yeah, I guess. Yeah. But um, so, what's I guess? How are you maintain your sobriety now? Do you engage in any AA groups, NA groups, or anything like that? Yeah, so I go on TikTok, and I've got like a really big. Um, recovery community on nice. tiktok yeah, yeah I, honestly like i never thought that i would use that app for that specific purpose mm. but um the other week i'd lost my phone and that was the only thing i was concerned about the fact that i would have lost my little yeah. recovery family in a mm. way yeah because it's a support network at the end of the day. it's how, how you choose to engage in, in support so is that what is that the main focus of your sobriety then engaging like recovery community is it more like online engagement I suppose, yeah yeah because i suffer with a bit of agoraphobia and things you know i'm sort of like i'm not really a people person i, I seem like it yeah yeah but well, like I'm you not. said it's, it's, the, it's the mirroring isn't it i suppose it, that's how you'll seem like a people person it's the burnout as well i think yeah. i'm getting the impression that you hate sitting here when we know it's just a mirroring face that you're doing and you're no, just, just pretending no. to be happy to sit on that. <laughs> no 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 Honestly, no, it's nice to it's nice to hear. I've never heard anyone say that using TikTok to maintain the sobriety. Yeah, and I've you know it's, it's impressive, and it kind of reaffirms a little bit that of, of work that we're doing within our team at Renew because we are trying to build, um, I suppose, online recovery messages and mm. stuff. And it's, it's what we're doing here today, isn't it? It's basically. so easy because at those times of cravings, I'll think of an inspirational TikTok, yeah. and re- it, it might only seem like a silly little TikTok to somebody else, but to me. That's been my craving time yeah. where I've done something purposeful yeah. with it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I think it's so important for other addicts to pass the message on yeah. that recovery is possible. Yeah. A lot of people who watch this podcast will know me. Yeah. They'll know the things that I was doing yeah. for money. They'll know the lifestyle that I was leading. Yeah. And for those who don't know me, to see me sat down like this now they probably wouldn't even recognise me. A lot of people do just walk by me in the street and don't recognise me. That's good, though, isn't it? Do, I, that was one thing that someone said to me before. I said when there was a drug addict in addiction, that that you know, likely more people, if you're under the influence in public at, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon, everyone's going to be looking at you. Yeah. But one thing he said to me, he said, I never knew I was being looked at then. He said, it wasn't until I got clean where I suddenly felt naked. He said, mm. I felt like everyone was looking at me then. You ever experienced anything like that? Or? I suppose it's subjective, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, of course you know? it is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, and I, an and I don't but... think that my experience is really subjective because it's an autistic experience, so it's a neurodiverse experience. Yeah. And I, in a way, like, it, it, it's, it's really complex in a way because I kind of feel like I don't have trust in my own opinion anymore mm. because my opinion isn't a neurotypical opinion. Mm. So I feel like I'm kind of a bit opinionless at the moment. Yeah. It's a real weird transition that you go through. I suppose now, like you said, it, it, going back to obviously I use the analogy of feeling naked, not just necessarily in terms of clothing, but it's your emo- I guess your emotions are a little bit more bare now. And I guess in some way, after 17 years of addiction, you're finding out now 
who Nadine actually is. Yeah, I am. Yeah. 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 It's, it's nice to see that, yeah. especially after all this time. I, I imagine that's quite comforting to feel that. And when you talk about, you know, dopamine and stuff, I imagine finding out new things about you and what, you, who you are as a person. Yeah, will give you them. And everything feelings. sort of makes sense now. Like in my recovery, I always feel like the stars were kind of aligned. Anyway, I was in William Bove. It was lockdown. Yeah. Um, I got clean while living in William Bove. I stopped using living in William Bove that's after amazing. I'd had all that yeah. using time in there so everyone was used to me using and things mm. but because it was lockdown no one was really seeing each other and I found it much easier so yeah. I got clean living in William Bove and then I got my house um which was at the other end of Hull <clears throat> if I'd have stayed at West Hull probably could have been a very different story even mm. it was just like literally all the all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle just bum fitted together yeah. at the right time for me and I, and I do understand how lucky I am that that happened because it doesn't happen for everyone that way. Yeah, brilliant. Mm. Thank you very much, Nadine. To be honest, is there anything else you want to talk about? Or? No, not that I can I'm, think I think of. That's, I think that's great. So, Nadine, how we finish all of these podcasts is with a general 10 questions. Not related to anything we've spoken about so far. Uh, completely, I say completely random. It's the same 10 questions we use every podcast, but again, unrelated. So, my first question to you is, uh, what is your favourite word? Discombobulate. Good one. <laughs> What's your least favourite word? Um, moist. Uh, tell me something that excites you. Seeing my son happy. That's nice. I like that one. His smile is my yeah. new drug. Yeah, I like that. That's a good one. Tell me something that doesn't excite you. Housework. Yeah. What's your least favourite? See ADHD in me, I yeah, think. Well, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. Because I can't, like, I'll start a million jobs and not finish them and I'm I get overwhelmed and I, 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 can fr I thrive in a clean space, but I struggle to get the space clean. Yeah. If you come to my house, like, there's tidy piles everywhere. I call yeah. them piles of doom. Yeah, things yeah. that you've got to do. And if someone touches so. them, God help them, because I know where everything is within every pile. But if someone who can't find anything, can't yeah. find anything, I get really mad about it. Yeah, I understand that. I understand <laughs> that. Uh, tell me, what sound or noise do you love? I really like brown noise. Brown noise? Yeah, it's an ADHD thing. What's brown noise? It's, um, it's almost like... Um, it's like traffic and, and, oh, and streets okay. and hustle yeah, and bustle. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, what sound or noise do you hear? Screeching. Screeching. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's a triggering sort of sound for me for mm. some reason. Fair. What's your favourite curse word? Fuck. Yeah. You can't say it. I'm a, I am asking the question. You don't have to whisper it, but yeah, that's fair. Um, I, when I go mentally blank, I've got a really bad habit of um, filling those blank spaces with swear words. Yeah. You've done really well on this. I know. I, I swear quite a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm quite conscious of it when I do record these, but yeah, you're doing, you're doing well with it. Got a good mask on today. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like future. Yeah. What profession would you like to attempt? I would really, really love to either... Um, work with Lighthouse or um, I would really like to sort of like do something within the drug field. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Fair. It's very cliche, isn't it, though? Everyone says, oh, I want to be a drug worker now and help other people. It's so cliche, but... I but can't... I understand why people do want to because if you've received so much help from drug workers and drug services, why wouldn't... And, and like you said, about it's about giving back and a lot of people want to do that, don't they? So giving I, back I to the community, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
Um, and then my last question for you is, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? The, um, no matter what problems I faced through life, I kept my heart pure and I tried to, the only person I ever hurt was myself. I, I always tried to not hurt anyone else around me with my behaviours and I'm, I'm quite proud of how I did there. There's not a lot of people that can say, oh, you know, she, she wronged me when she was in addiction. Not a lot. And I'm quite proud of that. Good. Thank you very much. And thank you for your time, Nadine. Thank you for sharing your story. And it has been an absolute pleasure to oh, have you here with us Thank you today. for having me. I thank appreciate it. <laughs> and if you enjoyed this episode of the Believe in People podcast, don't forget to check out our other episodes and hit that subscribe button. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our name is CGL Hull. That's C-G-L-H-U-L-L. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon and Google Music. So please like and subscribe to receive regular updates. You can also search for Believe in People podcast on your favourite listening device. And if you could leave us a review, that will really help us with getting our message out there and rising up the daily podcast charts.